0: morning good morning everybody you need to take your Bibles and we're going to turn to the book of Revelation the last book in the Bible Revelation chapter 2 and from verse 8 we're going to be reading and if you have church Bible it's on page 1 2 3 4 page 1 2 3 4 in the church Bibles Revelation chapter 2 as a Darren has reminded us we've had one week in these letters, seven letters written by Jesus to churches of that day. And uh, last time we looked at the church at Ephesus, and today we're looking at the church of Smyrna. We'll come to that in just a second. He was... uh, just three years old when his father died but that wasn't a great loss to the young boy because his father was a killer a liar a cheat a bully his mother took over the family business and continued to raise the boy and to educate him and she married again until she deliberately Killed the boy's stepfather with a dish of poisoned mushrooms. He was reared in squalor, but grew up to be a notable son. While he was still young, he committed his first murder. A teenager got in his way as he was walking along, and he decided he'd kill him. He killed him, and he watched him die with completely, complete callous indifference. He married at 15 years old, but soon had his wife killed. He married again, and then he killed his second wife. In order to marry a third time, the person he wanted to marry was already married, so he killed her husband. About this time, his mother began to annoy him so he arranged for her murder initially by doing it by guile and stealth but when that didn't work very well he just did it openly as a person they say he was a fairly ugly person thick neck thick set overcast eyes flat nose pot-bellied spindly legs He had a skin complaint, and uh, it was said of him that he smelt terrible all the time because of his lack of personal hygiene. At the age of 31, he was sentenced to death by flogging, but he managed to escape to the house of one of his slaves, and in the basement of one of his slaves, he cut his own throat. And it was this man who gave the early church its first taste of things to come his name was Nero Caesar Nero he was one of the Caesars and the first of the Caesars to set about systematically persecuting the church but he was by no means the last by the time of the book of Revelation which was written by John, Nero had come and gone, and now Domitian was on the throne, and he was another one. And he had a, well, his mother was a blasphemous tyrant, and so another second round of persecution began under Domitian. And the church at Smyrna that we're thinking about this morning was then, it's a microcosm of the church under pressure. That includes Abbey Church today. What it means to live under pressure. Now with that as an introduction, let's read the the, uh, story of Smyrna or the letter to Smyrna out loud together. It's on the screen and we'll read it out loud together. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you into prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. So here we are with this book, this uh, letter to Smyrna. Smyrna is about 35 miles from Ephesus, 35 miles up the coast of, uh, 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 from Ephesus. And it was a city that was called, and it called itself the Pride of Asia, the Pride of Asia, They were very wealthy and very well known, and it was a wonderful place to live. It was a beautiful city, but the church in Smyrna was really suffering, both in the past, in the present, and they they anticipated the suffering in days to come. Now, what would Jesus write to such a church? Well, there are two things we're going to think about this morning. First of all, he writes to tell them that their suffering was understood by Jesus. And the second thing was he had some things to say that would strengthen them and comfort them. First of all, he understands suffering. Of course, there's many types of suffering. There's external suffering, suffering that comes in from outside. Things like earthquakes and tornadoes like the one in Oklahoma just recently and, and droughts and famines and so on which lead to suffering. Things that came upon uh, that part of the world and come upon the same part of the world that we're in today. Those terrible things that are natural things but even just that's not our subject today but even say saying that it's worth just mentioning in passing the reason those things happen the Bible tells us is because when man sinned right at the beginning the whole creation fell with him the whole creation was brought under the power of sin right at the beginning and consequently even in the natural world we reap some of the fruits of that sin Now, what does the Bible say about that? Well, Jesus is not indifferent even to that type of suffering, for it says that he is creating a new heavens and a new earth. So we can look forward to that with great anticipation. But then there are internal areas of suffering, things that come from within us that cause us to suffer. Who I am, my weakness, my failures, etc. I don't know if you've ever thought of temptation. As being a cause of suffering the things that you're prone to as a cause of suffering temptations and if you never thought about it like that well I mean just ask any for example a a drug addict on one hand a drug addict will long to hold out his hand to take the forbidden fruit but on the other hand he hates it for he knows that it brings him under control Of the drug, and he despises himself because he does it. Even that, then, is a suffering that he goes through, and we do the same, if not with drugs, we do it with other things, and we say, Oh Lord, I've done it again, I'm sorry, I wish I couldn't, didn't do it. The moral issues of life, the financial issues of life, the temperamental issues of life, they get a hold on us, but they are cause us great suffering because we don't want to do it. On the one hand, we do, which is why we do it. On the other hand, we don't want to do it, but we find ourselves doing it, like Paul in the New Testament. And Jesus deals with these issues too. If he deals with the natural world by creating a new heavens and a new earth, he deals with us by creating us as new people. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that... um, If anyone's found in Christ Jesus, he's a new creation. The old has passed, the new has come. If you're a believer today, that's something to rejoice in. So in general, we can say that Jesus fully understands suffering, whether it's external or internal. But in the case of Smyrna, the type of suffering they were going through, we haven't mentioned yet. And he calls it afflictions. It's there, look, in the verse. I know your afflictions. For them, it was the suffering of persecution. You know, I mentioned about Nero and his persecution and so on, but the problem we're talking about those things, which happened centuries and centuries ago, is that we can put it off into the background and say, oh, well, that's history. It's not today. It's really irrelevant to us today. We go to Gloucester and see the statue of Bishop Hooper, who was burned at the stake just outside the cathedral there, and you think to yourself, well, yes, that's terrible, but that was then. Today, we don't feel quite like that. We don't see those things, so we need to be reminded of some of the things that Mary talked about last week about North Korea when she was here. It is real today. There is terrible persecution going on today. I'll recommend a book to you. It's Radical by David Platt. Let me just read a little bit from the introduction here. He's a young pastor in the United States, but he he travels the world. But he said, uh, uh, in the service of the gospel, he says this, Imagine all the blinds closed on the windows of a dimly lit room. Twenty leaders from different churches in the area sat in a circle on the floor with their Bibles open. Some of them had sweat on their foreheads after walking for miles to get there. Others were dirty from the dust of the villages where they'd set out from on their bikes early that morning. They gathered in secret. They had intentionally come to this place at different times throughout the morning so as not to draw attention to the meeting that was occurring. They lived in the country in Asia where it's illegal for them to gather like this. If caught... They could lose their land, their jobs, their families, or their lives. I listened as they began sharing stories of what God was doing in their churches. One man sat in the corner. He had a strong frame, and he served as the head of security, so to speak. Whenever a knock was heard at the door or a noise was made outside the window, everybody in the room would freeze in tension, and this brother would go out to make sure that everything was okay. As he spoke... His tough appearance soon revealed a tender heart. Some of the people in my church have been pulled away by a cult, he said. This particular cult is known for kidnapping believers, taking them to isolated locations, and torturing them. Brothers and sisters having their tongues cut out of their mouths is not uncommon. As he shared about the dangers his church members were facing, tears welled up in his eyes. I'm hurting, he said. And I need God's grace to lead my church through these attacks. A woman on the other side of the room spoke up next. Some of the members of my church were recently confronted by government officials, she continued. They, th- they threatened their family, saying that if they did not stop gathering to study the Bible, they were going to lose everything they had. She asked for prayer, saying, I need to know how to lead my church to follow Christ, even when it costs them everything. As I looked round the room, I saw that everyone was now in tears. The struggles expressed by this brother and sister were not isolated. They all looked at one another and said, we need to pray. Immediately they went down on their knees and with their faces to the ground, they began to cry out to God. Their prayers were marked less by grandiose theological language and more by heartfelt praise and pleading. Oh God, thank you for loving us. Oh God, we need you. Jesus, we give our lives to you and for you. Jesus, we trust you. They audibly wept before God as one after another prayed. About an hour later, the room drew, si- the room drew silence, and they rose from the floor. Humbled by what I'd been just part of, I saw puddles of tears in a circle round the room. In the days since, God has granted me many other opportunities to gather with believers in underground house churches in Asia, men and women there risking their lives to follow Christ. Men like Jan, an Asian doctor who left his successful house clinic, uh, house clinic and now risks his life and the lives of his wife and two kids in order to provide for impoverished villages with med- medical care while secretly training an entire network of house church leaders. Women like Lynn, who teaches on a university campus where it's illegal to speak the gospel. She meets in secret with college students to talk about the claims of Christ, though she could lose her livelihood for doing so. Teenagers like Sean and Ling, who've been sent out from house churches in their villages to undergo intensive study and preparation for taking the gospel to parts of Asia where there are no churches. Ling said to me, I've told my family that I will likely never come back home. I'm going to hard places to make the gospel known, and it's possible that I'll lose my life in the process. Sean added, But our families understand. Our mums and dads have been in prison for their faith, and they've taught us that Jesus is worthy of all our devotion. That's today. Today. We don't actually need to be reminded of it, except that we need it to come home to us that we too might find ourselves in those sorts of situations. Now the word that Paul, uh, that uh, Jesus uses here as he writes this letter is afflictions on the screen, the afflictions. But what does that mean, the afflictions? Well there are several things that are spoken of here, and uh, they all come under this title of afflictions. If you have the English Standard Version or the Authorized Version or some of the others, you'll see it says you will have tribulation. Not afflictions, it's translated, but tribulations. And the tribulum from which we get our word tribulation was a threshing instrument. There's a picture of one. They're still used in some parts of the earth. It's a block of wood or planks of wood about six or seven feet square very heavy, and into the bottom of it has set stones and flints. And that sledge is dragged across the thre- threshing room floor, and the grain that has been cut, and it will separate the wheat, the kernel, from the chaff. And it will chop up the chaff as it goes backwards and forwards, which the wind then blows away. And the literal meaning of tribulum is pressures, unbearable pressures. And Jesus is therefore saying to these people, I know your unbearable pressures. Here we are sitting on a sunny day, in a school, in peace and quiet in Gloucester. But I wonder if in your own heart you're going through times of pressure at this time. You know pressures. Some pressures you wouldn't even want to share with somebody sitting next to you. Some others would know about. But pressures, pressures, crushing pressures, cutting pressures, hard pressures, heavy pressures, burdensome pressures, pressures that you're facing. Well, that's what this means when he says, I know your tribulations, I know your suffering, I know your afflictions, I know it. And then he mentions four things that he actually knows. Here they are. He knows their poverty. He knows their slander. He knows their Prison, that they're going to go to prison. He knows that they will reach the point of death. Four things. Let's just touch on them each in turn. First of all, he says in verse 9, I know your poverty. Smyrna was a wealthy and prosperous city. So why was the church so poor? Well, perhaps it was because it says in Corinthians that not many wise, not many Uh, influential people by human standards are called, not many people by noble birth, as Paul says it in 1 Corinthians one twenty six. Maybe they were the sort of lower end of society, that were in the church. We're not specifically told. But what we are told in the New Testament is that many of those early Christians, well, this is how the writer to the Hebrews writes to them, Remember those earlier days after you'd received the light when you stood your ground in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property knowing that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So here they are, people who are going through times of great poverty and they put up with the pressures the, the afflictions the tribulations because they were following the Lord Jesus even when it cost them they gladly accepted the confiscation of their property because they knew they had a better inheritance now what does that mean to us do you feel sometimes that you're missing out because you're a Christian Missing out on prosperity. Let's just take that example. Prosperity. You're refusing, for the sake of Christ, to do some things at work. And because of that, you're missing out. You're missing out on a promotion, or raising your salary, or whatever it is. You're missing out. Or you feel that it's dishonoring to take every waking moment and give it to a company. Because you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, and you know that you should be serving Him and giving some of your time and effort to serve Him. And so you refuse to take the promotion that would take every minute of your life, and you're put under pressure because of it. Or you can't bring yourself to tread on the hands and feet of those who are also climbing the ladder, so that you can get over them. You can't bring yourself to do it because you're a believer. And consequently, you're missing out. We have to face it. It is not, it doesn't always pay to be a Christian. Jesus says, I know your poverty. I know it. Second thing he knows, of course, was their slander. The slander against them. Here in Smyrna, the slander was primarily of Jews, accusing Christians to the Romans. When people say things against you, it's never easy to bear, and especially in those situations when you cannot, for whatever reason, defend yourself. That's why the Bible is so strong about how we use our tongues. The word slander is the same word as blasphemy. They were saying blasphemous things about the Christians, speaking evil against them. And Jesus says, remember where it comes from. It comes from the synagogue of Satan. Satan, who's the accuser, who's the slanderer, as Jesus called him. Jesus called him the liar from the beginning. The trouble is that gossip is so fascinating, isn't it? So intriguing. As it says in Proverbs, the words of a gossip are like choice morsels that go down into a man's inmost parts. They're lovely, juicy gossip. But it says about Jesus, when they hurled their insults against him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 23. Let me just digress with one sentence. Have you ever thought of the judgment when it comes? The judgment being your greatest friend. We tend to think of judgment as being our enemy. Oh, I don't want to stand there. But actually, in some situations, judgment will be our friend. Because those times when we've been mistreated will all be put right. And justice and the judgment of God will sort out those things when you've been slandered, when you've been maligned unjustly. In Christ, you can look upon judgment as a friend when all the wrongs are put right. But here they endured poverty and slander. But that's all in the past. What about the future? Well, there's two things in the future. They endured prison. Jesus speaks about that. The devil will put some of you into prison, verse 10. Catherine Booth, who Katie Booth, who was the... Uh, eldest daughter of William Booth who started the Salvation Army, she took the gospel to the roughest parts of Paris. Then she went on where she was uh, badly treated. But then she went on to Switzerland where she was imprisoned for preaching the gospel in an open-air meeting in the forest, Neuchâtel Forest. And she was put in prison for it, having been banned from hiring any halls where she could preach. But she wrote in prison this, Best beloved of my soul, I'm here alone with thee, and my prison is a heaven since thou sharest it with me. Prison is a reality for many in the world today because of their faith in Christ. And it doesn't take too much imagination to see it creeping up upon even people like us. Are you ready? Are you prepared? Would you go to that extent, putting up with the poverty, the slander, and now imprisonment? And then there's the fourth thing. Some of you will suffer even to the point of death, Jesus says in verse 10. Here in the UK in the 21st century, the possibility of death for the sake of the gospel was, and thankfully is still, a fairly remote possibility. Surely we'll not be called upon to die for Christ, will we? The answer is probably not. But you see, that's to miss the point. If in saying that we say, well, that's something that's not relevant to me, it was relevant to them or to some places in some parts of the world, it's to miss the point. After all, it is not true, is it not true that if Something is not worth dying for. It's not worth living for. And the fact is, we are called upon to live as if we are dying. What does that mean? Well, it means that we hold on to the possessions that we have lightly. Because we don't take them with us when we die. They are not important to us because we have our eyes set on something else. Like the funeral procession going down the road, and two people watching, and then the man who died, that somebody said to the, their friend, How much did he leave? And the answer came back everything. Everything. It may be possessions, and we're called to live as if possessions are going to disappear. However, it may not be possessions, it may be that uh, it was their honour, their reputation. And we are called to live as if our reputation is not the important thing, our rights, our prospects. When Jesus died, it was not just his life that was lost, but have you ever thought about the fact that when Jesus died, his reputation was lost? Because he died as a condemned criminal. We're called to live, willing for our reputation to be maligned and destroyed. In fact, today, Christians... And the church around the world is being mocked and vilified, but that's such a small price to pay. It will get worse, and so should we not seek to bend our walk with Christ to put up with those things as well. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was hanged as a direct order of Himmler in the concentration camp in April the, ni- April the 9th, 1945, wrote this, Suffering is the badge of a true Christian. The disciple is not above his master. Luther reckoned suffering among the marks of the true church and one of the memorabilia, memoranda drawn up in uh, preparation for the Augsburg Confession similarly defines the church as the community of those who are persecuted and martyred for the gospel's sake. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering of Christ and it is, not, it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. But I want to say something about that. You know, It's not the type of suffering which makes you grit your teeth and say, because I'm a Christian, I'm going to go on anyway, gritting my teeth. It's not that at all. When Jesus spoke about it in the Sermon on the Mount, he said this is something to rejoice over. He put it like this, Blessed that is happy are you when people insult you, persecute you, and say falsely all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So it's something, he says, that we should not be gritting our teeth stoically and enduring and going going through, but we should be able to rejoice knowing that the things that we feel that we would lose through our persecution, well, they're not important to us anyway. We're only holding them with an open hand. Now all this talk about being faithful unto death was for the Smyrna Christians, a literal and immediate issue. Imagine being in the congregation that Sunday or whenever it was, when they got this letter, when the angel of Smyrna, whoever that is, the word means messenger, the messenger to Smyrna, came and brought that letter and said, we've received a letter. I'll read it to you. Imagine what they felt as they heard that, probably meeting in secret somewhere, when they heard it all. Well, don't you think when they went home from church that Sunday morning, they would be careful how they, where they went? Would they walk past the pagan temple? Or would they say, well, let's take a detour. detail. I don't fancy going past that place, having heard that today, that we're going to be imprisoned and put to death, etc. Well, one senior church leader in Smyrna was almost certainly there at that time. Whether he was there when the letter was read, I don't know. But he was there at that time, we're pretty sure, The early church fathers, Tertullian and Irenaeus, both refer to him as the Bishop of Smyrna. And both say he was commended as a church leader by John, the Apostle John himself. His name was Polycarp. And though this hadn't happened, later on Polycarp himself was to go tread his pathway of suffering. It was February the 22nd, probably A.D. 156, the venerable bishop who'd fled from the city at the entreaty of his congregation, this was Smyrna, remember, was tracked down to his hiding place. He made no attempt to flee. Instead, he offered food and drink to his captors and asked permission to retire for prayer, which he did for two hours. Then, as they drove into the city, the officer in charge urged him to recant. What harm could it do, he asked, to sacrifice to the emperor. Polycarp refused. On arrival, he was roughly pushed out of the carriage and brought before the proconsul in the amphitheater, who addressed him, Have respect to your old age. Swear by the genius of Caesar. And again, swear and I will release you. Revile the Christ. To which Polycarp replied, Eighty and six years I have served him, and he's done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The proconsul went on. Swear by the genius of Caesar, I have wild beasts I can bring. If you will not change your mind, I'll throw you to them. Bid them be brought. As you despise the beasts, unless you change your mind, I make you to be destroyed by fire. Infuriated Jews and Gentiles gathered wood for the pile to burn him to death. Polycarp stood by the stake, asking that he would not be tied to it or fastened to it in any way. And he prayed, O Lord, Almighty God, Father of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we received the knowledge of you I thank you that you've counted me worthy this day and this hour to share the cup of Christ among the number of the witnesses the fire was lit but the wind drove the flames away from him and prolonged his agony and eventually a soldier finished his agony with his sword and Polycarp died This was a reality for the people at Smyrna, not a theoretical thing. Polycarp, the church leader, was to be sacrificed like that. So this letter tells us that we shall suffer, they would suffer, we shall suffer, whether it's through poverty, slander, prison, or death. Now let's just finish with a comment or two. What does he say to encourage such people? When you're going through it, what does he say? First of all, he encourages in suffering by saying, do not be afraid. You see it there in the uh, end of the letter there. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Then a little bit further down in verse 10, be faithful even to the point of death, and I'll give you the crown of life. Two things, do not be afraid, be faithful. This is not the sort of glib, Always look on the bright side of life. Eric Idle. I mean, when Eric Idle says that, you know, he, it's nonsense, actually, if you read the song. When you're chewing on life's gristle, don't grumble, give a whistle. And this will help things turn out for the best. Always look on the bright side. That's nonsense. Or, don't worry, be happy, says Bob Marley. And um, how does he justify that? Well, in every life we have some trouble. And when you worry, you make it double. So don't worry, be happy. How, what help is that? But when Jesus brings reality to these people, the sufferings they were going through, he says, let me tell you why you need not, need not worry, uh, need not be afraid and be faithful. First of all, because Jesus endures, verse 8. He endures And suffering doesn't endure. Jesus will not become overcome because he's the first and the last. He has neither beginning of days or end of life. You know, there's about 400 times in the New Testament it talks about and it came to pass. There are things that come to pass and suffering comes to pass. It will pass because Jesus is the first and the last. That's the first thing. Secondly, secondly, Because Jesus brings life when suffering brings death. He's the one who died and came to life again. Be faithful unto death. That means obedient right to the point of death. Because he is the living one who overcame death. Thirdly, because Jesus understands when others don't understand. He says, I know your suffering. Other people may not understand it, but Jesus we may know when we're going through it, he understands the problems and pressures we're going through. Have you ever wondered what the worst thing about extreme persecution would be? Would it be the physical suffering or what would it be? I don't know the answer because I've not been in that situation. But I tend to think it would be the loneliness of it all. That's my opinion. It might be wrong, but loneliness in a prison cell somewhere, being tortured, knowing nobody knows, nobody cares perhaps, that sort of loneliness. I think one of the worst things about Jesus' trial and his suffering was that no one stood with him. No one stood with him. He was on his own. Even Pilate asked, where are your followers now? And this verse tells us, I know, I know, I know your sufferings, I know your afflictions. Jesus understands when we're going through it. And Jesus sees in verse 9. He sees when others don't see. In fact, it says there that he, or everybody else thinks that we're poor. But Jesus knows we're rich. That's how he puts it. When men see stupidity in walking with Christ, Jesus sees what great wisdom there is in it. When men see failure, Jesus sees success. When men see poverty, Jesus sees riches untold, treasure laid up for us in heaven, a crown of life, as he puts it, laid up for us. We may take strength and not be afraid and be faithful because Jesus controls the situation when others think they're in charge. Some of you will be thrown in prison, but it'll only be for 10 days, just for 10 days on that situ- this situation. In fact, it says in the Bible that Jesus won't let us be tempted beyond what we're able to bear, neither would he let us suffer beyond what we're able to bear. He will control even those who cause the suffering. And then because Jesus brings purpose when life seems meaningless. Even Satan's attack, he says, well, he's only doing it to test you. He attacks you to test you, and he allows Satan to, to test us. The difficult thing about Job's suffering in the Old Testament was that um, Job never really knew the first two chapters of the book of Job. But we know, having read those first two chapters of the book of Job, that the suffering that Job went through because it was because of a conversation God had with Satan. And Satan said, well, of course Job's following you because you look after him. You put a hedge around him. You protect him. And that's why he follows you. You make life easy for him. And God says, all right, then you can take the hedge down. You can do what you like to him as long as you don't kill him. And that's when the attacks on Job started, one after the other. Lost his property, lost his family, lost his health, lost everything. Job didn't know why. We know why, but Job didn't know why. And the fact is that when Satan comes, he comes to test us. But actually, God is doing something in the world through our suffering. And he allows it even though Satan is the one who's testing us because he sees, brings purpose even out of those meaningless times. And lastly, because Jesus brings reward when persecution leads to destruction. I will give you the crown of life. There will come a time, you know, when the picturesque language of the New Testament will be fulfilled when we shall receive rewards. We'll be given crowns for life lived And on that occasion, we shall be thankful and we shall say it's worth it. All that we've been through. That's what Paul says in Romans 8. I consider that the sufferings of this present world are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed. So if you're going through the tough times, there'll come a time when you'll say, thank you, Lord, that you didn't give it to me easy. Thank you that I had those tough times where I I can see now what it's all about. I just want to thank you. Even though no one understood at the time, I want to thank you. And when you receive those crowns of reward, what will you do with them in heaven? Will you wear them and strut around heaven saying, look at mine. Look at all the jewels in it. My grandmother used to say when you did something kind or helpful, she said, that's another jewel in your crown. I don't think she would write, but I don't think she would have actually argued it too strongly, but that's what she used to say. But what will we do with our crowns in heaven? Just strut around heaven wearing crowns. Oh, he's only got three jewels. Look at that. I've got 17. Not at all. Not at all. It says that when they look into heaven, they saw... And cast their crowns before the throne saying you are worthy O Lord our God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being you are worthy so we look forward to that tremendous time in the meantime with the people of Smyrna we say Lord help me to be faithful not be afraid and be faithful because of all you've done for us Let's sing a closing song together, a very short song. And during this song, we shall be taking up our offering for the building project. In the last Sunday in the month, we have an offering. If you haven't come prepared for that, well, we quite understand. But just pass the offering bag past, but we shall be taking up our offering for the building fund as we sing this song. So we shall keep our seats to sing. uh, uh, I've got the name of the song now. Hide Me Now.